Welcome to Inside Business, the Irish Times podcast uh, presented by myself, Tom Lyons. Uh, we're joined in the first part of the show by Simon Carswell, Washington correspondent with the Irish Times. Simon, you've just finished a major report on the former Baron of Bove Bridge developer, Sean Dunn, that goes deep inside the complex, very complex world of that he lives in. And uh, I, I just want to like take a step back, Simon, first of all, to introduce Sean Dunn. Uh, you know, he was born in Carlo, but how did he first get a start and make his money? Well, he started off developing houses in um, one of the major, and became one of the major uh, Irish house builders. Um, he, in his entire career in Ireland, built in the order of about three and a half thousand houses, he's told uh, his creditors in, in Connecticut in the US. Um, he expanded from houses into shopping centres. He developed the likes of the Whitewater Shopping Centre in Newbridge. He invested in commercial property buildings along the Keys and in the IFSC and really became an all-round developer as the Celtic Tiger era took off, building offices, shops, residential developments and major mixed-use schemes. Um, so became really one of the top, I would say, one of the top 50 developers in Ireland during the boom. And in your, your article in the Irish Times on Friday, Simon, you're, like it features quite a lot uh, his second wife, Gail Killalee. Can you tell us who she is and how did the two uh, get together? Uh, Gail Killalee was a well-known socialite in, uh, in Ireland and gossip columnist for the Sunday Independent newspaper. Um, Killalee and Dunn first met at the Galway races in July 2002 and they married two years later in what was one of the more lavish uh, weddings of the uh, Celtic Tiger era. Uh, she celebrated with, they celebrated with guests on a luxury yacht, Christina O, which was owned by uh, the shipping magnate, uh, used to be owned by the shipping magnate, Aristotle Onassis. Um, and the two of them would have been regarded as the golden couple of, of, uh, of the boom years in Ireland, given his high profile and given her um, high visibility on the social scene. And not long after the two married in March 2005, Sean Dunn reached a very generous agreement with his wife, uh, Gail, while on holiday in Thailand. And this was to do with him transferring part of his fortune over to to her. In this first clip uh, from uh, Sean Dunn's bankruptcy proceedings, the developer explains exactly how this deal happened. And then one day, Gail just said, right, said, let's write it down. And we sat down and we wrote down the agreement. And it's as simple as that. What was the agreement? The agreement was that uh, out of the large pool of assets that I had, which at the time I would think, I don't know, maybe would have had 20 sites, assets, substantial assets. So uh, it was that I would transfer to her uh, 70% of the profits that accrued from uh, six assets. and. Uh, I wouldn't transfer the assets, I wouldn't transfer ownership, I wouldn't transfer title because that was going to lumber her with a huge amount of work because then she would have to go and employ architects, zoning attorneys, builders or get us to build it. So the fact that I wanted Gail to uh, stay at home, rear children, look after the family home, keep her out of the business, it was that I would transfer 70% 70% of the profits that would accrue from those assets. The 30% was basically to look after the tax and the costs associated with them. And they were all predominantly residential properties because residential uh, or tax on residential properties in Ireland at that time I was 20%. So that was the basis of the agreement. 
and that was Sean done there in his bankruptcy case just before Christmas. Uh, Simon, you know, after this deal in 2005, which, which Sean Dunn describes in such detail, what did he go on to do to, to earn himself the title Baron of Balls Bridge? Well, he took on a major <clears throat> development in Dublin, in, um, in Balls Bridge. He bought uh, the Jury's Inns and Berkeley Court Hotels and an adjoining site for one of the highest prices paid for a plot of land or pieces of land in Dublin or in Ireland. Uh, he paid $379 million, which represented uh, $54 million an acre, which was an astonishing sum of money to be paid at that time. And he used loans from a group of lenders led by Ulster Bank. His plan was to transform Balls Bridge into a kind of Dublin's answer to Knightsbridge in London uh, with a major redevelopment in this upmarket suburb that would have changed really the face of the area. Um, now, planning for that stumbled. Uh, it didn't work out. It, um, and uh, by the time the, the, the plans were changed, uh, the property crash had arrived and um, banks uh, oh, banks in Ireland really were suffering in the credit crisis and the property market collapsed, values collapsed. So really his, his plans for Balls Bridge were brought down by the crash. And then in 2008, uh, Simon, as, you, as your article reveals, you know, he, he did a follow-up agreement with his wife to transfer fair over even more assets to her. What exactly happened there? Well, in 2005, he'd agreed to transfer over um, a number of assets, lands in Rathfarnham and Clonsky and in um, Malahide in Dublin, lands at Charlesland in County Wicklow, uh, as well as uh, profits from, from uh, the sale of a hotel, um, the Lagoon Beach Hotel in Cape Town in South Africa. Uh, as well as uh, profits to be made from a company that owned two houses on Shrewsbury Road, number, numbers one and three. By th- 2008, it wasn't possible uh, to sell the Lagoon Beach Hotel. Um, so what Sean Dunn did then was he transferred his interest in the hotel. He also transferred uh, loans that were did, uh, that he had given to his company, Mount Brook Homes, uh, and associated companies and subsidiaries. He transferred those loans to his wife. So when the companies were repaying him, instead of repaying him, they repaid his wife. Um, so the 2000 agreement was a follow-up agreement. All told, he estimated that in 2005, he would have transferred about a fifth of his net worth, a fifth of his fortune, which he estimated was about 100, 100 million. So that 100 million, um, the plan was to, to pass that to his wife. He said in 2007, at his creditors meeting, he said that um, he estimated that Gail's net worth was in somewhere in the region of about 75 million euro. So 2005, Simon, we have Sean Dunn, very wealthy man. 2008, he's a very he's a guy with an awful lot of an awful lot of debt. And then we're moving into 2010. We see him moving to America, uh, and now a client of the National Asset Management Agency. Why did they decide to go to America, and what did they initially do when they got there? Well, in 2007, Gail Killley uh, decided she wanted to leave Ireland, look at opportunities for children, international experiences for them. Um, this is according to Sean Dunn, as he told his creditors in Connecticut. Uh, so they left Dublin in 2007. They moved briefly to Paris and to London, and they decided to move to Geneva in Switzerland. Um, uh, and after two years in Switzerland, they moved on to the U.S. in uh, in August 2010. And on their arrival in the U.S., two companies were set up, um, Manbrook USA and Molly Blossom. These are two companies that planned to buy uh, sites, buy houses, renovate them, redevelop them, and sell them on again. Um, and Manbrook USA was behind a number of property uh, developments in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is one of the wealthiest towns on the U.S. East Coast. Um, it... Uh, bought um, three houses, uh, 
to which they sold on later making a, a substantial profit and a third house which they are currently claim to be living in in Greenwich, Connecticut, a house in Stillman Lane. They also um, bought a house in Rye in New York um, and divided the, ended up dividing the, the plot of land into two plots and selling it on for again for a profit. So they've, uh, through this company, which uh, Dunn claims is Gail Killalay's company and not his company, they have done quite well in the, in the property market in the U.S., but back home, Simon, I mean, things weren't going quite so well for them. Uh, how, did, like, how did his empire begin to crash and how did this ultimately lead to his, him going bankrupt? Well, in 2011, uh, the bank, bankers to Mount Brook Homes and um, Mr. Dunn's companies uh, put them into receivership in, in that summer of 2011. Um, really, the, the prospect of the Bulls Bridge deal getting done was gone at this stage because the property market and the values had fallen so substantially, leaving such a large amount of debt on the properties. And really, it just didn't make financial sense given the amount of money that had been invested in uh, the sites. Dunn himself has said that he invested $120 million of equity in Balls Bridge, and that's all gone. He said in his creditors' meeting last December, that's the reason why he was sitting in bankruptcy. That investment that he made really was pivotal in uh, in, in the collapse of his property empire. So in 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 um, in 2012, then you had uh, Ulster Bank moving to seek repayment of loans from Sean Dunn as well as the National Asset Management Agency. Uh, NAMA obtained a judgment against him for 185 million in March 2012, and this was followed two months later by Ulster Bank, which got a judgment of 164 million. So uh, at this stage, while he was in the U.S., the banks were moving against him and NAMO was moving against him in Ireland. Um, Ulster Bank moved then in early 2013 to apply to the Irish High Court to make Dunn bankrupt. He saw this happening. He saw that it was, it, it was a real possibility. So he voluntarily filed for bankruptcy in Connecticut in March uh, of last year. Um, and in that filing, he listed uh, debts of $942 million, which is in the order of about €700 million. Euro. And he listed assets of about $55 million, which is about €40 million. Euros. So those figures themselves uh, tell the story, really, of, of the financial collapse that Sean Dunn uh, went through as a result of the property crash back in Ireland. And Sean Dunn also, during his bankruptcy case in 2013, gave us even some more amazing details about his deal with his wife, Gail Killalee, and what she had to do in return for doing the deal. And so what did she transfer to you? Did she pay you for those? She transfers? transferred her love and affection to me. So the agreement was that she would um, provide you with love and affection and you would provide her with, in exchange for that, um, Love and affection and children, yes, and in exchange for that she was to get 70% of a certain number of assets which, when it was balanced out, was on the day, on my valuation, was about 20% of my net value. And what was that at that time? At that time, approximately 500 million. So I was at 500 total value, is that 500 for the 20%? No, no, my total value, 500 million euros. 20% of that, 100, 110, 120, I don't know. It, it, you see, on the day, it would depend on what the asset was going to be worked out at. So you transferred $100 million worth of... Uh, no, 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 no. More valuable than dollars, euros. 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 So $100 million euros for love and affection. Love and affection, children. Yeah. yeah. And children. And children. And, yeah. yeah. Having a happy marriage. And having a happy marriage. Yeah. So that was the Cooking, cooking the odd meal. Cooking the odd meal. Yeah. 
washing the odd shirt. Very odd one. Uh, it, is that all written in the agreement? Uh, I don't know. She wrote the agreement. Could you show me a copy of it? You don't have it well. We give it to Nama. And that was Sean Dunn there uh, ex- explaining quite an extraordinary uh, deal. What, what did you make of it, Simon, when you were there listening and, and hearing all of this? Well, the thing that jumped out at me most was just the size of it um, to transfer that amount of money at that time or pledge that amount of money to his wife. Um, it was an extraordinary sum of money. Also, what surprised me about it was that <clears throat> that it was done on a holiday. Uh, it seemed to be when they were away in Thailand, it seemed to be done quite informally, um, handwritten. He said that they did it together. They, she wrote it down and that his son was on the holiday with them. So it seems strange that for such a large sum of money, 100 million euro, that there were no lawyers or accountants or financial advisors in the room. And that agreement was reached uh, between them on their own. And so where are things now, Simon? I mean, Sean Dunn, you know, he's described himself as the ace of spades and that he, he's described himself as somebody that, you know, Nam is relentlessly pursuing. Oh, where are the main battlegrounds between the two sides? Well, NAMA has issued five sets of proceedings in the U.S., and Dunn represents two of those proceedings. So uh, they're very actively uh, fighting him in the courts. They initially took an action in a state court in Connecticut, but when he filed for bankruptcy, they decided to transfer their battle to the federal court, to the bankruptcy court. Um, And within the proceedings, they took what's called adversary proceedings, and they want to stop him walking away from his debts, from those debts of $942 million um, and his discharge from bankruptcy, which allow him and give him a fresh financial start. And they're claiming a number of things. They're saying he shouldn't be entitled to discharge because they've alleged that he's hindered, delayed and defrauded creditors by concealing assets or transferring assets out of his estate to his wife. And they're also claiming that he has knowingly made false oaths or accounts in his bankruptcy proceedings. And they listed 22 false oaths in one document that they've lodged in the court. Now, Dunn maintains that he was entitled to transfer assets to his wife in 2005 and 2008. And he has said he was solvent at that time. He said when the agreement was reached, uh, Bank of Ireland at that time had valued his net worth at $500 million. Uh, he says that Ulster Bank returned a site that was unencumbered, that is, a, no debt on it. Um, and he showed this as an example of just what kind of rude financial health he was in at the time of these transfer of these assets. So he's saying he was very much entitled to do it. Um, and he's, fighting, uh, he's fighting the challenge by NAMA uh, in the courts, and so too is his wife. Um, Gail Killale has sought to quash subpoenas. Um, that, that NAM has issued against Credit Suisse and First Republic, which are two banks that they did business with over here in the U.S., as well as property agents, Colwell Bankers. So they're not taking it lying down. Um, they're, they're fighting NAM at every step, and it's made for some uh, pretty dramatic litigation in the U.S. courts. And, Simon, you've been in court there with Sean Dunn, and like, what's his de- demeanour been like? I mean, when he was here during the boom, he was somebody who wasn't afraid of publicity, would be well prepared to talk to a journalist. Have you managed to interact with him much? Not a lot. He uh, reserves his energy and his contributions really for for uh, for court and for the creditors' meetings. Now, uh, Friday marks the today marks the um, uh, the fourth instalment of his creditors' meeting. It's the first one was back in June. So at these creditor meetings, they can be quite dramatic. There's quite intense questioning. I'd say that 
done is fairly defiant um, and he really <clears throat> wants to get on with it, wants to go back to do business. Uh, he comes across as very impatient at times, gets very prickly, gets very angry at some of the questioning, particularly when it relates to his family, when it relates to his wife and uh, the business affairs of his children. But uh, he said that he wants to carry on and do business again. He told me uh, last year that he hopes someday to pour concrete again, as he put it, in Ireland and get back into the development game. And he has said it too in these creditors' meetings that he's looking around at sites in the US and in London. Now, he maintains there for his property businesses for his wife's companies to develop with him acting as an employee of her companies. So it's not him being the principal, but his wife. And also in one case, in this site in Soho in New York, it's his son who's the principal in that case. But Nam is claiming that the, uh, that Gail Killeley and her companies are using mon- money that was fraudulently transferred to her by him. So really they're saying it's his money and he's a, and she's just a front for him and his and really what he wants to do is return to business here and that she's providing that front for him. And do you believe them, Simon? Do you, do you think that Sean and Gail have what it takes to rebuild a property empire, whether in America, whether back home or, or, or anywhere else? Well, they're going about it anyway. Um, Sean Dunn in his capacity, as he claims, as an employee of his wife's company and also working with his son, John Dunn, uh, his 32-year-old son, they're looking at developing a property, a very val- valuable property down in Soho in, in New York, um, the fashion district around in, in Manhattan. Um, I think it'll be hard for them to move on while all this litigation is pending. He's in a unique position of being bankrupt both in Ireland and in the U.S., and really, you only have to look at the case of former Anglo-Irish Bank Chief Executive David Drum to see how long bankruptcy can be, even in the U.S., where it is far more lenient than in Ireland. Drum filed for bankruptcy in the U.S. in October 2010, and he's still fighting it out with the former Anglo-Irish Bank, which is, which in that case as well, uh, Anglo is seeking, the bank is seeking to block his discharge from bankruptcy, and his trial is is later this year. So really, that gives you an indication of just how long it can be when there's adversarial proceedings in the U.S. courts. It can last many, many years. And in the case of Sean Dunn, he's also bankrupt in Ireland, where it can be far longer than in the U.S. So it looks like there'll be a few twists yet. Uh, Simon Carswell, Washington correspondent with the Irish Times. Thanks for coming on Inside Business. And make sure to read Simon Carswell's full report in the Irish Times or irishtimes.com. It's just a simply incredible story. And in the second half of this week's Inside Business, uh, we're joined by Kira O'Brien, who's just back from Barcelona's absolutely massive mobile World Congress. Uh, Kira, um, one of the keynote speakers at the uh, at the Congress was Facebook boss Mark Zuckerberg, and he spoke about how he'd spent nineteen billion dollars on WhatsApp. Having listened to this speech, did the deal make sense at all to you, or? Um, well, I suppose it makes a bit more sense than when we originally found out he was going to spend $19 billion on something that doesn't make an awful lot of money at the moment. The main reason Facebook want WhatsApp is to connect people. This is the, the, the kind of the crux of it. Facebook obviously wants to connect everybody in the world, preferably through their platform. WhatsApp has 450 million users, I think, at the last count, and they're signing them up at a fairly fast rate per day. That is, is what's of interest to Facebook because they're signing up young users, which is somewhere, one area where obviously Facebook lately has been, a lot of questions has been raised over whether or not Facebook can hang on to the younger generation. So Mark Zuckerberg was there, supposed to take part in the keynote panel session. He talked a lot about uh, the internet.org project that they do, which is trying to get people who are currently not online um, connected to the internet. And obviously a key part of that is mobile. 
WhatsApp is uh, obviously a mobile application first. Um, Facebook is trying to make us with bigger inroads into mobile. They've had some success. Obviously, a lot of people who use Facebook would use it on mobile, but they want more. They have their own messenger application. But where WhatsApp is big, um, kind of outside the US, is where Facebook Messenger wouldn't necessarily be the first choice for communication. Facebook wants to be that first choice for communication. But, but when you look at you know WhatsApp, one of the reasons people use it is it's so simple. There's no advertisements or anything like that. I mean, did he give any hint as to how we're going to get some of that $19 billion back? WhatsApp have a very clear, or they have up until now, had a very clear business model. They don't put advertising into the messenger service. Um, if you downloaded WhatsApp before a certain date and you were on Apple's iOS system, you paid a once-off fee of, of $0.79 cent or $0.99, cent, depending on whether you're in Europe or the US. That is now in change to you download it for free, you get a free trial for a year, and then you go on to a subscription model, which means you pay uh, $0.79 cent or $0.99 cent for the year, and you pay it every year. So there's a kind of recurring subscription revenue there. It's not enough at the moment, I think, for Facebook to kind of recoup those costs, but I'm not sure if they're looking at it as a revenue generator. They're looking more as a strategic thing. It keeps Google out. Uh, they seem pretty sure that WhatsApp is on track to get a billion users, and that's the magic figure as far as, as Zuckerberg is concerned. Anything that can get a billion users has got to be worth looking at. Uh, even if they do get to the billion users, which obviously there's no guarantee, I mean, the these things are quite fickle. You know, people might be using WhatsApp now, but there's every chance that they'll be using something else in a year's time, especially when it comes down to actually paying for it. So it, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I think it's it's something obviously Zuckerberg is quite confident about, otherwise Facebook wouldn't have bought it. But, you know, these things can turn so quickly. And what about looking at, at mobile phones? You know, like looking at smartphones, was there anything there that you thought really surprised you or something that you thought, now that's really groundbreaking? There would have been a lot of surprises had things not been leaked to death beforehand. This is it's an increasing problem facing all these tech conferences that people know a lot of stuff before they even get there. There was very little that we saw there that we didn't know that was coming. I think the big shock, had they managed to keep it under wraps, would have been Nokia unveiling their Android handset because obviously Nokia has gone with Windows Phone. They When they decided to drop Symbian as, as its primary smartphone platform, they went with Windows Phone. Microsoft is in the process of actually buying the phone unit. So for them to turn around now and say, well, actually, we're going to release an Android phone when they previously kind of skirted the issue and, and, and stayed very clear of Android, uh, it, it, was a, it would have been a bit of a shock. But again, everything had already been leaked online, even down to the name. And what do you think of the, the wearables on offer, Kira? I mean, was there anything on the smart uh, smart watches or anything to do with fitness that really you caught your eye? Everyone's trying to do these now. It's one of those things that if you're not doing wearables, well, that you know, where are you? So um, Samsung obviously was was fairly quick into the, the game with the smartwatch last year with the Gear, uh, Galaxy Gear smartwatch. They have obviously taken the user feedback on board. They brought out uh, two new versions of it, the Gear 2 and the Gear 2 Neo. But the one that everybody was interested in was actually the uh, Gear Fit, which is aimed more at fitness users. It's got a curved uh, screen on it. It's got a curved touch screen on it. It looks great. Um, again, I'm, I'm not really 100% sure on wearables at the moment, mainly because for a certain part of the population, you want something that is not going to be very noticeable. You want something that will look like a regular watch that you can use um, and you don't have to kind of remove if you're going out at night. There was one company there, a Finnish company, uh, who brought out this watch, uh, basically called the Ibis. So it's kind of modelled on um, some design of a bird carrying another bird on its back, which sounds kind of abstract, but when you see it, it actually looks like something you would wear and you wouldn't really know as a smartwatch. The problem with a lot of the smartwatches up until now is they've been kind of 
chunky plastic or silicone or you know very kind of industrial looking um, design and that doesn't appeal to everybody so there was a few interesting things there um, Huawei are doing something called a talk band which will not only kind of you know be a fitness tracker it will also uh, you can pop out part of it and it's actually a Bluetooth headset so you can take calls on it yeah, that's a bit more, I suppose, a bit more unusual than some of the other ones out there. But, you know, again, nobody's really doing anything that is completely revolutionary. And the other big story, I mean, it's been the year of Edward Snowden. We're hearing words like PRISM and the NSA for the first time. Was security and privacy a big concern? Were, was that people, was something that people were all talking about? I think that's always obviously an issue with people at the moment and you could see it at the conference there was a lot of people talking about protecting your privacy protecting your identity whether it was with apps or with technology there was uh, the Black Phone which is a collaboration between two companies Geeks Phone and Silent Circle and they have brought out this phone that we we were kind of looking at it as NSA proof it's not NSA proof because essentially if the NSA want to get into something chances are or any other security agency chances are they're going to get they're going to get into it you know a phone's not really going to keep them out the uh, the black phone though it's an Android phone based on um, it's based on Android but it's more of a secure version of Android it will encrypt certain calls it'll encrypt text messages it'll encrypt your files and it makes it that bit more difficult just for I suppose if people are prying around to actually get into those private things that you'd rather stayed away from uh, strangers eyes it's I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see where that goes, um, whether or not too many people actually buy it because it's selling for something, oh, it's $630, I think. So, I mean, you're, you're talking about a decent uh, smartphone with a decent price tag. Kieran, when you were going around, uh, you know, the World Congress, were you bumping into many Irish firms down there? And who did, who did you see and what type of products were they selling? There's a lot of Irish firms actually exhibiting at Mobile World Congress. Some of them have their own stands. And then there's about 18 this year in particular that were on Enterprise Ireland stand. Enterprise Ireland every year take a fairly decent uh, stand. They, they create an Ireland pavilion. And uh, smaller Irish companies, startups, they all get the chance to to, to go and exhibit there. Uh this year, there was companies like Brandtone, 3V, uh, Escher. They were all available for people to talk to if they wanted to. I mean, it's usually a great kind of way for Irish companies to make contacts as well as announce news. And obviously, there was a bit of news announced as well. Brandtone were announcing their new platform, their new marketing platform that's designed to make it much easier for brands to reach millions of users with, uh, with one click. Haystacks were there to talk about their new um, their new kind of marketing campaigns, which is something called intentional advertising, which they are kind of involved in search analytics um, and behavior based around what people do online. And they've kind of established themselves as a bit of an expert in this. And they've now come up with a, a new way where it takes the kind of the behavior of people and puts it in context so they can tell companies, you know, what people intend to do. And then companies can offer them say offers or promotions based on that so it, it's better for companies it's better for the consumer they neither of them are kind of getting unwanted ads or you know offering people who aren't going to turn into paying customers ads and they've had a bit of interest actually from some major mobile operators they're not saying anything just yet because the deal isn't signed but they are talking to a couple of big players Kira O'Brien uh, thanks for coming on Inside Business uh, with all the latest from Barcelona's Mobile World Congress and that's it for this week's Inside Business, which was presented by myself, Tom Lyons, produced by Sinead O'Shea, and the sound engineer was Bravo Sword.